Welcome back to Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Hope everyone is having a fantastic week. Today we discuss the purple martin, a really interesting bird that in the eastern U.S. lives almost entirely in man-made structures. Way back when, Native Americans used to even build structures out of gourds that purple martins would live in, and they continue to live in man-made structures today. In the west, they live in holes in trees, cacti, and build their nests in other structures. It's super interesting to talk about the difference between the east and the west for these birds. John and Shannon talk about banding these birds as well, and what they're hoping to learn from them. We also briefly discuss the impact that the 4th of July has on birds, and also the smoke from the recent forest fires that everyone is dealing with. Okay, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Uh, it's nice to see everyone. I'm with Amanda and John and Shannon, as always. Um, did everyone have a nice 4th of July holiday? We did. It was uh, quite patriotic in the sense of the fireworks and everything. Nice, nice. Mm, patriotic? Yeah. I'm Canadian, and I okay. still do not understand <laughs> American 4th of July. No. Fireworks, I don't understand why people want to go to the hospital with their fingers blown off. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tradition. And annoy their neighbors and yeah. scare the dogs. I had to put my noise-canceling headphones on, oh, and it yeah. lasted so long they ran out of batteries. Oh, my gosh. So our neighborhood was a nightmare for oh. two days. Oh, man. So yeah. is that patriotic? <laughs> yeah, it sounds patriotic. What did you do? Yeah, we went to a barbecue out in the western suburbs. We had a friend that just had a, you know, just a kind of pretty chill backyard, um, just grilled out and hung out, so that was nice. But there were definitely fireworks in the area, too, which we could hear. Yeah. So it was nice. How was the drive back? Because I described that as, as oh. like almost going through a war zone. In, oh, in, yeah. In the sense of yeah. flares going off in every single direction. Most yeah, of the yeah. yeah. We, were, we were on our way. Um, so we stayed somewhere for like, in a, like just a 10-minute drive from his house out there. But on the way from his house to the hotel where we stayed, it was like fire. We could see the town next door, yep. the town over, yes. the town past that. Yep. It was like they were everywhere. Yes. Yeah. yeah. get up a few floors and... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I feel like there's been kind of a lot of awareness online recently about like fireworks and how they affect animals. And so one of the things we wanted to ask you guys about was kind of how they affect birds. So I feel like growing up, like in the Midwest, we lit off fireworks all the time and it was like, didn't think twice about it. And now it's like, you're realizing the impact that it has on wildlife. And, you know, I'm reading a lot online about things. So I was curious as far as birds, what fireworks do to them? Well, every once in a while, really bad things happen. In other words, uh, I remember a number of years ago, there was uh, some online chatter about all these birds that uh, that died actually over New Year's down in the South, and they were worried about some kind of crazy uh, epidemic happening. And we ran into a researcher from the USGS lab up in Madison, Wisconsin, and they're the ones who get a lot of these events. They get specimens and they're asked to figure out what happened. And the researcher told us that most of the time these were things like fireworks. Oh, wow. And so if you're, there's a roost nearby and you blow off a set of fireworks after the birds have gone to bed, they're going to panic. And so there have been situations where large numbers of birds have died simply because they were roosting near places where firework displays started. So wow. they crash into each other or they crash into the wires and other things. Oh, no. Fall dead. A I lot was, of them. I, I've, when I go birding on the morning after July 4th, I feel like it's incredibly quiet. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And I, I feel like things are just kind of 
what happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jeez. so I do think that there's an impact there. Yeah. I don't know of, it's probably just my ignorance, but I don't know of studies that have been done on noise in that sense. Hmm. On birds, there are going to be more things like that because of urban, the study of birds in urban environments where noise and light pollution are serious problems. Because they're drawn towards light or it distracts well, whether it, you... it gets in the way of their immune systems functioning mm. and their hormone systems. Everything can be dysregulated mm. if you have too much light mm. when you're not supposed to. So, okay. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we've been getting the stress. A, we've been getting a lot of questions about the issues that we've had because of the air quality and the fires in the oh, in yeah. Canada. Oh, sure. Yeah. What does that affect birds? How does that affect birds? And I think the quick answer is stuff like this does happen and they have to deal with it, but it's definitely they, they're going to have as much respiratory problems potentially as we do. Mm. And so you really wonder there may be specific species that it's much harder on than others. Mm. Does it affect their migration too at all if there's birds that are migrating during any of that or...? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was there have been some uh, stories about die-offs in southern New Mexico that, that uh, a lot of people were thinking might have to do with fires and in, in the west that have become more frequent. But I've had other people tell me that there, were, there was a specific cold front that went through right as birds were migrating across this area where there were a bunch that were found dead. And, and it could be that if they're in slightly bad shape because the foraging hasn't been quite as good as a result of fires. They get further south and they hit a cold snap and suddenly they're, you know, so you can imagine that there are cascade effects sometimes that, that we might not actually think about. Oh, wow. And when you guys get like a specimen at the field museum, is that something you're able to see as far as like smoke inhalation? Or is there a way to tr like oh, track? We, I mean, we probably actually could. I don't, yeah, I don't know that yeah. people have, have really looked that much. Oh. And it's an interesting question, but, hmm. but those kinds of things are, are absolutely questions that should be looked into. Uh -huh. I mean, when we do get birds that have crashed into windows, for example, sometimes they look perfect on the outside. Uh, you, wouldn't, you can't even tell uh, that something like that happened to them. But when you open them up, you can see pretty clear that they've had very massive head trauma mm -hmm. that's not visible from the outside. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think we wanted to talk today about the Purple Martin. So um, I'm glad we got into all the 4th of July stuff. I feel like there's been a lot of um, info out there about how it affects like pets and people are raising a lot of awareness about dogs and it's, you know, it affects wild animals just as much, if not worse. So yeah. I just wanted I to bring that up a little bit. I can't imagine that owls like that, like those noises oh, no. very much yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, Purple Martins, which we're going to talk about today, mm -hmm. are breeding in areas along the lakefront where there's probably an awful lot of fireworks. And mm -hmm. I don't think there's they respond all that badly to that. So mm -hmm. it just so happens that we have a project that we're two years into where we're banding the purple martin uh, nestlings along the lakefront. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be out actually starting tomorrow oh, wow. banding one of the towers at, uh, at Montrose. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what is that process like when you, when you band purple martins then. So tell us about what it is like going out in the field, how you get them, what you're looking for. You know, it, it's so funny to me because because compared to a lot of the field projects that I've worked on, it's one of the easiest things I've ever seen. Oh. So these houses are incredibly well designed and there's a Purple Mountain Foundation that encourages people to put up martin houses and it's one of the most interesting birds in North America in the sense that 
its nesting structures are almost entirely human built martin in the houses. East, right? in the, but yeah, in the West, it's a yeah, it's a little different. Yes, so they're still nesting in cavities and holes and stuff yeah. that other birds have dug out or other organisms have dug out. But mm. you know, but 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 here, in these mountain towers, you have to keep out things like house sparrows. So the the, the monitors will actually you can lower these houses on these pulleys, and you can go oh. in and you can clean out the house sparrow nests. And then as the martins come in because they're migrating from South America. When they arrive, they'll take over the, the tower and, and there won't be a problem with as many house sparrows after that. Okay. Have you guys looked at the towers? We they have. look like little condominiums, yeah. right? right? Yeah, They really do look like yeah. houses. There's, so. a, there's a number of them at the Chicago Botanic Gardens. And so we were there early spring, went there and saw the, the house and didn't realize what it was. And then it was like all of a sudden, one week later, it was completely full. And it was like so cool to see all the little ones in there. And um, I don't know, we got our binoculars and like looked up close and they're so cool when you see them up close too. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah. they have so much detail, kind of the little feathers on their head and kind of their big mouths. Like we said, they almost look like like Muppets when you kind of see them up close. Yeah. Like they really look cool like the closer you see them. They do. So, and and yeah. so so the reason we're doing the banding right now is the, the chicks are, are just about getting ready to fledge. Okay. And so they're big enough to have a band put on the leg they're also big enough that even though you're basically bothering the martins while you're doing this, they've invested so much in those offspring that they're going to come back immediately. And the martin houses are designed to where you can get in and out and get the nestlings, pull the box out, bring it over, band the chicks, and get them back in a really short period of time. Oh, wow. So it's a it's a really neat system. And with enough banded birds, you can begin to collect a whole bunch of data on life history stuff over time. Oh, Okay. Do they get defensive at all when you're going in there? Like, is mama coming in and trying to stop you? or? No, <laughs> no. And, and as a matter of fact, it's, it's amazing because what they're doing this time of year as the chicks get bigger is you were talking about how interesting they are facially. Mm -hmm. They're coming in with just mouth foods of insects. Oh. And so they're literally just sitting there waiting for the chicks to be ready to be fed again. Oh. And, and so it's it's they're, they're really awesome birds to work with in that wow. sense. If cool. you look at swallows, you know, purple martins are swallows. They're in the swallow family. And... There, everything about them is to have as much surface area to capture as many insects as, as possible. So their beaks are little weak, wimpy kind of looking things that, but their gape is ginormous. So they just fly around with their mouth open, capturing a bunch of insects. And so if you hate mosquitoes, you should want a purple martin house oh. by your, um, you know, by wherever you sit out because they really do eat a lot of bugs. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. We that, should get a house closer I know. <laughs> yeah. And what Shannon was just saying totally reminds me of what you were saying about it looking like a Muppet because it's <laughs> like the whole head yeah. It's like a mouth. Yeah, almost. when we looked at it straight on, it was like almost like it was smiling mm -hmm. ear to ear. You could kind of see how wide its mouth was. So a yeah. lot of birds have that. They have beaks that are like that when they do that. They fly mm -hmm. around in the air and, you know, capture insects while they're flying, okay. and that's a pretty common characteristic. Mm -hmm. So I always like to say that a form follows the function. So the function mm -hmm. of flying around means you better have a piece of equipment that's, <laughs> you know, optimized, at least somewhat optimized for what you're doing, which is 
you know, having a big surface area, a big mouth mm-hmm. to feed yourself and your and your young. Yeah. And all of their feeding happens in the air, right? It's all insects that they get out of the air. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes you'll see them come down to water to drink. So they'll mm-hmm. come along the lakefront sometimes and run their bill into the water um, to get water. But other than that, they're basically out getting insects. You know, as Shannon was saying, they're part of this swallow family. And one of the interesting things about swallows is they're – probably six species or so that breed in the Chicago area. And and I would say the martins, which are in their own genus relative to everything, all the other swallows in Chicago, have this habit of foraging much higher in the air column than than a lot of the other swallows do. So they'll come out and, and get very high sometimes and are probably going after a whole set of insects that a lot of those other species won't eat. Okay. Huh. And then, so what is a characteristic of a swallow then? Like, I know when we see swallows, I can tell kind of what it looks like, but what differentiates a swallow from other types of birds? Because the martin definitely has those characteristics, but I can't quite, like, put my finger on it. Yeah, it's a... Go ahead. Well, they have um, long, tapered wings, which help them be aerial maneuvers. Many of them have even deeply forked tails, but uh, purple martins, their tails aren't so, so forked. Mm. Um, And then they have characteristic flight patterns they look like they look like mar- they look like swallows in the air i mean mm-hmm. if you look at them enough times you start to get a kind of a the gestalt of what a swallow looks like the, 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 you- the thing that you can most confuse them with are chimney swifts which mm-hmm. are also here in the summer mm-hmm. and what i'd say is as chan is right i mean they've got broader wings and and Chimney swifts have this fluttery flight that the martins don't have. They, they fly with a little bit deeper thing, and they often soar a little bit. Um, so, yeah, once you've looked at them a few times, you can get used to the differences. Yeah, chimney swifts have, they call them cigar-shaped bodies, and so their actual bodies are really different, even though superficially they do a lot of the same things. They fly around in the sky and capture and capture tons of insects with their mouth, but they're not even closely related. So mm-hmm. swifts are near hummingbirds in the tree of life uh-huh. for birds, and uh, swallows are songbirds. Okay. So they are like on very different branches uh-huh. of the tree of life, even though they basically make a living the same way, they get their food the same way. Mm-hmm. And again, swall- swifts, just like swallows, have very wide gapes um, because that's advantageous for flying around like a big fly trap uh, in your mouth so yeah and then do all swallows do they all kind of live like in groups as well like the martins do is that common or uh what i'd say is so so of the swallows in the chicago area i would say barn swallows and and northern rough wing swallows are kind of semi-colonial or solitary nesters but the and tree swallows also fit that description. But then you've got bank swallows, which definitely will nest in big colonies, and they nest in holes and sandbanks. And then cliff swallows are notorious for building their these nests underneath bridges and buildings in, in colonial fashion, too. So if so, you go on the northwestern campus, there's a place where you can see a whole bunch of swallows that have built their nests. Okay. And would martins, so so many purple martins live in these kind of homes that have been built, you know, that are man-made. I know in the West that they sometimes live like on their own. Would they in the East find somewhere else and make their own nests or do they rely pretty much on these houses at this point? Yeah, I asked myself that question and I started looking through literature and it looks like they 
ex- almost exclusively nest in these man-made structures wow. in the east now, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. So where do these birds go when they migrate and how close to where they're born do they come back? And that's one of the things that that this study will get to look at. So the chicks will not just be banded, but they'll have blood drawn. And so we'll start to understand how many individuals, what kind of genetic variability is there, where are these birds coming from? Uh, so that we'll know a lot more about that in the future. Okay. Do, the, do the birds, just like we do with peregrines, do the birds come back to the same to the same house, even if they don't go in the same box. Do they come mm-hmm. back to the same house? I don't think we know anything no, and, about and, that. I mean, one thing we do know about the, the group that they're part of, so this genus Progni, is that, that you've got the birds in eastern North America doing one thing, you've got the birds in western North America doing another thing. There's a population in central Mexico that's been split off into another population. And these are these populations in North America tend to be long-distance migrants, so they'll winter in the Amazon basin. But there's even something where there are purple martins, uh, and there's geographic variation in, in how these birds look. If you go into the collection, you can see the variation. But down in South America, there's a, a, a purple martin where the male looks just like the purple martins in North America. And that population is migratory in Argentina, moving north into the Amazon basin. So the genus over evolutionary time has been really successful in terms of spreading out across landscapes, which is really interesting. Hmm. That's so cool. I was thinking, just well, based on what we're talking about, so the ones on the east coast or the east eastern U.S., does it mean just generation after generation, those parents aren't teaching their kids how to build homes, but just how to find homes? So, so within the that's a really neat question because and and it's one that actually we may be having a graduate student look into this. So, so within these houses, they actually bring sticks and and small amounts of vegetation, but. There's a ton of variation in how much stuff they have to put in. And to me, the crazy thing, now that we've done this a few years, is there's not much penalty for not putting a lot of stuff in. <laughs> so one graduate, we have a graduate student at University of Chicago who's actually interested in the evolution of nest construction. And she's going to be looking into this system because what we can provide are data on the reproductive success of nests related to nest structure if she's interested in looking at this. And there may be that we'll find that birds that build, put in less effort and build a lesser structured nest don't do as well. But it gets even more interesting to me in the long term because some of these nests that actually have a ton of structure also have their whole, whole insect fauna associated with them. So one of the reasons why they have to go in and clean them out every year at the end of the season is because there are these blood parasites that actually live in the nest material oh, wow. and will come out and actually feed off the chicks in the nest. Oh, wow. And, wow. and so there's a this whole interesting system. And, you know, my, that's an evolutionarily derived thing. And, yeah. and so, yeah, that's a, that's a, that question about nest structure is really interesting. <laughs> if, we, if we could do experiments on them, which would be uh, not impossible but close to, what you'd want to do is take an eastern um, – a bunch of eastern ones and put them in the west and mm. even put a house up in the west because the ones that are there now don't they don't nest in houses 
so what are they teaching them to find a cavity that you can put in and you find the easiest one which is a house that humans have put all over the place or are you incapable at that point of finding your own cavity to to nest in are you so tied to humans because that's got to change the how they view nesting or the success maybe of of nests but then again they are colonial and that puts more colonial than things would be in the west and that puts birds at risk too for uh, the transmission of disease Mm -hmm. uh, and parasites and things that could negatively influence both the individuals and a nesting success so Mm -hmm. it's interesting there's lots of things that you wish you could do Mm -hmm. but that would be can you imagine doing that? No, but I, <laughs> but but but, but I, you know, this is the nice thing about these systems is that they're they open themselves up to asking interesting questions that you may not have th- thought about going into it. Which is, you know, Shannon was saying one of the reasons why we wanted to start this and get data is we think it's a wonderful system to get people interested in birds because you can see them. They're going to do what they're going to do around these nest houses, and so so. Kids can watch them and look at behavior and things like that really easily. If if you know if if we get uh, colonies around the field museum developed over time and and uh, and we can ask a lot of different questions. Mm. Apparently, they don't abandon their they don't abandon houses very frequently. Oh. So if you if you get it going, you're mm. likely to be able to keep it going. Okay. So you know they must be teaching their children what a what a birdhouse looks like yeah how to find it well it is i mean one important thing is it does require these stewards going in and and lowering the houses and oh. taking out the house sparrow uh, and starlings materials I mean, and sometimes starlings so too. two introduced There's, species are negatively in fa- influencing they put oh. some ingenious things together in these houses that will keep uh, the entrance will keep like things like starlings are too big to come in okay and the house sparrows i think can be kept out of some of the the um, barricade things that, that they put on the entrances but you know that's a it's amazing to see this one species that's garnered so much inform, you know interest that people have actually thought through all these things yeah. but they're not very territorial they're not very territorial so they don't out they don't muscle out a house sparrow that's in there um, in one of the houses right so yeah that, and we, Shannon, to that point, that's what we've seen at the Botanic Garden mm-hmm. is we've seen like little sparrows in the same condo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. I totally wondered about that. They're, yeah. They're, they're persistent. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, again, that's the secret to house sparrow success is like get in there before everybody else and get started. And you yeah, can potentially. They don't seem to take things personally. House sparrows <laughs> don't, right? You know, you're going to feed near McDonald's. Okay, well, I'm going to eat you. I'm very resilient. I'm going to eat around you. They just like, they're very go with the flow kind of birds. I mean, the only time I've seen them really get agitated is when a Cooper's hawk flies through the yard and then they get very agitated. Yeah. But they don't care about grackles. They don't care about crows they don't care about blue jays things that could easily do them in okay. and do do them in yeah so yeah. wow so if you wanted to set up one of these houses then for the first time what would you do to try to attract i mean <laughs> we're yeah. not the best people to do no. that because we haven't attracted any to the ones we have <laughs> yeah i mean that's a that's an interesting thing so so lauren nassif who who's the person who worked with 
with us is working with us on the Purple Martin stuff. She's a she's a uh, works on the mammal division at the Field Museum, but she lives in Hyde Park, and and she noticed that the South Shore Tower wasn't being used, and she contacted somebody, and they said, if you want to open it up, that's fine, and she opened it up that first year, and didn't really have any expectations, and suddenly a few immature birds showed up. Oh, wow. And I think that's the key thing, is trying to get some young birds that can't find spaces at other colonies <laughs> okay. looking around to find places where they can they can start up. And oh. we're struggling at the Field Museum with respect to the houses that we've put up, and we think part of that may be that there are too many trees around and they don't have a good view of water, which is one of the things that okay. seems to be successful towers really, really have. And so we're working with the city and the museum to hopefully move the towers that we've set up away from the museum and down the hill towards Lake Michigan a little bit because okay. I, and I think that might make the difference. But it is interesting. You put this up and what do you do? Well, we actually rigged up a system to where we could remotely play calls of purple martins okay. and we have a model of a purple martin on the side um, <laughs> i can't tell you how many times you can I've 3d come print these things right if you oh. scan if you 3d scan some of our specimens you can then 3d print them wow, in varying materials and stick them places and but, they look pretty real but oh. while we were doing this i can remember hoping for birds and coming around the corner of the museum and getting all excited and suddenly realizing I was looking not at a purple martin, but a red-winged blackbird uh, that was just oh, sitting out oh, there. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so, uh. yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, I think we're getting close on time for this one. Um, so I think we'll do one mailbag question. Great. Um, so this was uh, a listener. This is Kathy from Skokie, Illinois. So Kathy wrote in... Um, the subject was a bird murder, question mark. <laughs> she said, one beautiful morning while enjoying my coffee, I witnessed a bird murder. I have an active feeder in my backyard, frequently visited by many species. I heard a different bird sound, which sounded like screaming. I ran to the window and saw a sparrow struggling to get away from a grackle. The grackle had the sparrow pinned down and continu continually stabbed its victim with its beak. As soon as the sparrow stopped resisting the grackle, carried the sparrow off. I presume to eat. Is this normal behavior? I was a little traumatized. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, nature can be traumatizing. Yeah. It? Sounds traumatizing. <laughs> watch a lion eat. Um, yes, this is very normal for grackles to um, do I, things oh. like that. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, not, not super common. I mean, that's, they're, they're not raptorial so it's not like a cooper's hawk or anything mm -hmm. but yeah i could see them i mean if a bird is young or injured or doesn't mm -hmm. get out of the way yeah it's going to be semi-easy pickings yeah. was it was it to, to eat it oh or, yeah for yeah. sure okay. he ate so, that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. so if it's any consolation for her, i can vividly remember being in this park one day and having this big bird go by me and it was a great it was a red-tailed hawk and the red-tailed hawk just made a beeline across the entire park and killed a common grackle at the far end. Oh. So, and, and I was thinking, like, that's not particularly normal either. I, don't, I just don't think grackles are commonly oh. eaten by Attacked. birds of prey, but clearly yeah. this red tail decided that. <laughs> Maybe that was it justice was, to yeah. the grackle. In, personal. Yeah. 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 It goes around, does come around sometimes. We have ewes in the bushes in the back of our house, and when the a Cooper's hawk will go through the House sparrows all scatter into the ewes, and sometimes they're followed by the cooper's hawk. And all you see is 
a little bit of movement and then feathers kind of puffing out of the oh my gosh (laughs) so you know they've gotten at least one thing inside there wow (laughs) yeah i mean it is dramatic but yes well it's nature i'm sorry but there are birds that actually kill things for real they impale them on barbed wire and then come back and eat them so there are shrikes that do that that's you know and i I think that's a lot more traumatizing (laughs) i think the number of times i've seen Crackles at the feeder with other birds there, and nothing happens too. So mm-hmm. I want, I want, that's interesting to think about what would drive a grackle to suddenly do that, and it just may have been opportunity. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kathy sent another follow-up email a day later and said, "So to add to the story, yesterday I found a detached sparrow wing in the lawn in a decapitated, dark-colored, newly hatched chick on my porch steps." What's going on in my quiet suburban yard? <laughs> so you might need an exorcism. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just think it's a, you know, this is an interesting time of year with respect to, to all these young birds coming out. There, a lot of birds are, are nesting for the second or third time, and other birds are looking for food. Mm-hmm. And if they find an unoccupied nest that has chicks in it, if they're a blue jay or a grackle, I would think that there's a reasonable chance that they might try to pull them out and mm. and and maybe once that that's the other thing is once you get used to it as an individual you may continue doing it mm-hmm. so maybe she's got a grackle that's but i also that's, think yeah. that murder seeing yeah. that once could <laughs> trigger her her abilities to actually look at birds differently so there are things that she might notice I'm sorry, it's trauma that's getting her there, but then <laughs> yeah. she might not. She might notice now that she wouldn't have noticed a week before. She might not know, have noticed a a wing right. uh, in her house if she hadn't seen that, which makes her look really closely at the ground to see if there are other things. Right, right. Um, yeah. This is happening elsewhere, and so yeah. I do think that there's a lot of awareness that gets changed when you see something that's kind of that shocking awful yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. that makes a lot I mean, of sense it sounds horrible but the fate of roughly 50 percent of birds every year is to die mm-hmm. and if they didn't die populations would be exploding and we know they're not purple martins for example are 25 percent fewer individuals than there were 50 years ago mm-hmm. so populations are not exploding mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. one of the things i love about the museum is that they they're gonna if they die they the collision monitors pick them up and we pick them up and the whole community is getting used to picking them up, putting them in their freezer and bringing them to us so they live eternally in our collections. So I like, I like that concept. Yeah. I Does like it sound too. macabre? No, <laughs> no not at I all. like that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good point to uh, wrap it up for this one. Um, anybody have anything they want to add or John, you want to wrap it up? Well, I'm just glad we got over the 4th and that the birds can get back to doing what they were doing and and recovering from the fireworks. Yes. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to give a shout-out to Earhole Studios in Chicago for allowing us to record there. They're amazing for helping us out with this. Also, if you have any questions for John, Shannon, Amanda, and I, feel free to send them to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com, and we'll make sure to get to them on our next episode. Also, just a friendly reminder that we're trying to spread the word about our podcast. Please, if you know someone that would enjoy our podcast, tell them about it and share it with them. 
We're also active on Instagram. I'll put a link on the podcast description. So feel free to give us a follow and share our page as well. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a good one.